Blog Talk Radio. We're
thoughts on that, of course. But anyway, I mean, here we are, 2017. Whatever your opinion of 2016 was, we have we have that you know we have the propensity to look at January 1st as a new beginning. So here we are, you know, the second Sunday into the new year, and I hope it's going great with everybody. Really excited, of course, always to have a show where we can shine the light on prohibition, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, we have some people coming in who are advocating for legislation to be passed in the state of Tennessee, who does not have access or extremely limited access, if I understand it, and I'll, I'll let them get into that as we get into that later on in the show. But I'm very happy to have a group of people working with a number of organizations in Tennessee fighting the good fight for cannabis access, particularly for patients in need who have been forced to use medication from the big pharma world that just basically destroys their lives in so many different ways that cannabis does not. It certainly makes it so much easier uh, in people's lives in so many ways to have access to the choice of cannabis, which is what this is really about. Prohibition is about choice more than anything else. Uh, you know, the, and of course, prohibition on cannabis is, was even more, is even more absurd than what they did with alcohol. Anyway, we'll get into all of that. I'm always happy to shine that light. As everybody knows, I'm a, I've been a cannabis prohibition, anti-prohibition, prohibition, anti-prohibition activist, my entire adult life, you know, so I'm always happy to shine that light along with other people that I work with all the time. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation a little bit later, but we're going to stay focused on prohibition to a degree before we get up to the show, because these issues of course are very important and prominent and they go across a number of areas, but certainly, you know, that one of the reasons why I mentioned the change you know, and the rhetoric that's been going on about how 2016 went, of course, obviously the election, the results of the election and what has come or possibly can come since. And for me personally, uh, both in my life and as an advocate, activist, and the work that I do in various organizations and, and the things I believe with and how I want to protect my children, my probably my personally my personal biggest concern is the nomination of Senator Jeff Sessions from Alabama as the new attorney general. Now, I'm sure most people who are listening to, well, first of all, everybody who listens to my show pretty much knows my attitude about a lot of things relative to liberty and government intrusion and the government control of our lives, regardless of what ideological argument it falls on you know i'm into freedom and i'm into the government you know i'm not one of these small government people i want good government i want government to behave constitutionally which means my rights are protected your rights are protected prominently you know we don't live in a mob rule country jeff sessions has a history of course you know he's been a public he's been a public for a long long time prior to him becoming a senator one of his jobs was as the United States attorney in Alabama. And President Reagan, who many of you have heard me say is probably the main reason why I got into activism, though there are plenty of inspirations prior to St. Reagan coming along. 
Ronald Reagan nominated Jeff Sessions for the federal bench, not the Supreme Court. It wasn't a Bork situation as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, but they nominated him for the federal bench. And at the time, and of course he was Republican, Ronald Reagan was Republican, and the Senate, the United States Senate, was controlled by the Republican Party. So in the standpoint of nominations for whatever, you had the partisan loyalty going on there. So Jeff Sessions could not pass muster by the Republican Senate Judiciary Committee. They refused to endorse him, and he was not appointed to the federal bench, obviously he became a senator. The reasoning behind that, that is being reported the most, and I remember, I remember this vaguely, I've never been a Jeff Sessions fan, and I've always paid attention to the legal end of things. It's part of my advocacy. But the main reason, the reasons that Jeff Sessions was rejected was because of some of the things that he had done relative to voting rights prosecutions as U.S. attorney, and also his racist remarks, open racist remarks, and apparently a number of people, and I I don't remember this, I don't think I watched the committee hearing, we didn't have all this television access that we do now back then, and his wasn't, you know, it wasn't for the Supreme Court, as I mentioned, but they, they had talked about, a number of people that worked for him had come in and talked about his race, his racial rhetoric and the way he behaved as a, while in office. So that was bad enough for him not to be endorsed by the Republican controlled Senate Judiciary Committee. So he, so here we, so here he comes now and Trump nominates him. And, and for me, it was surprising. And, you know, I say that and, and I, and I should slap myself because of course, you know, as I, you've heard me talk about many times, I'm so disappointed in president Obama on the basis of what he promised in his campaign and the potential of the things that could have happened that did not. So when it happens again, of course, and I, and I didn't vote for Trump, I didn't vote for anybody for president. I refused to give anybody in that group uh, my vote. But anyway, so, you know, Trump, of course, ran on draining the swamp and, and being an outsider, being somebody who had never been in politics before, which is, you know, we have no history to go by other than his business history, which is hard. But being, being outside of politics, you know, you hope from the standpoint of draining the swamp, I'm all for draining the swamp, that's going to happen. Obviously, it hasn't. And the nomination of Jeff Sessions is a really, really good example, a glaring example. And I bring him up mainly because of the theme of this, today's show, besides the fact that I'm always talking about cannabis prohibition anyway. Because as anybody who advocates in this area knows, or should know if they don't, Jeff Sessions is and has stated unequivocally that he is for prohibition and he doesn't think anybody who he doesn't think anybody who's intelligent smokes cannabis or uses cannabis. He doesn't even he doesn't even get as far as addressing the need for it medically. If you really must know his comments have been rather absurd, uh, and, but absurd in its lack of lack of factual discussion. But not absurd because it's obviously if he's going to become the chief law enforcement officer in this country. And mind you, the only way he's not going to come become the chief law enforcement agent uh, officer of this country is if Republicans bolt. Because the new Democrats, you know, and this happens a lot. Again, something else that happens a lot. You know, and I'm going to jump around a little bit. I just want everybody to understand what's going on here or try to help them understand. 
the Democrats, when they had control of the Senate, they implemented what was called the nuclear option. So with the, with the exception of judicial appointments, filibusters are no longer uh, effective or applicable in these particular situations. So there's no way for them, from an ideological standpoint, or if they find anything evil, unless they get some of the GOP to jump, there's no way for them to stop any of the cabinet appointments, <clears throat> excuse me, of Donald Trump. And, you know, I have a problem. I have some problems with some of the other ones as well. The rest of them are just like business as usual. I don't want any of them. You know, it's like I didn't, you know, it's like I didn't, I didn't want Obama to keep Robert Gates, the secretary of defense, when he came in. And that way, you know, <laughs> you want to talk about pissing somebody off. <clears throat> so anyway, so unless something drastic happens during these the Senate Judiciary hearings or in the vote, Sessions is going to be our attorney general, <clears throat> mind you. So you have a man who has come out publicly many times against doing any kind of legalization. You know, and mind you, of course, as everybody knows in the cannabis advocacy area, cannabis is illegal federally. There's no gray area in that regard. Now, of course, we all have heard how the budget has removed money from the federal government from interfering with the legitimate medical marijuana dispensaries and states. But that is not exactly, I mean, it's helped, but it's not as wonderful as many people are led to believe. It really isn't. You know, the, the, I, I know my friends in Northern California can attest to the fact that they, luckily the United States attorney that was assigned there, that woman was so hard and, and, and just, just went after California for so many years in so many ways, it's, it's just ridiculous. You know, I've talked to people that worked for her, you know, uh, that are now in private practice who have told me the nightmare stories inside the office and why they left. You know, she was the reason why they left, at least from, you know, because of her treatment of California's <clears throat> cannabis industry. This is what we're looking at with Jeff Sessions, unless, of course, he, you know, miraculously changes or <clears throat> somehow Trump says, no, you can't do that. I, I just don't see all that. I don't have any evidence of that. And then, of course, the other area that, that uh, Senator Sessions is relevant to cannabis, medical dispensaries, whatever you want to say, is he's also a big proponent of civil asset forfeiture, which is being uh, dealt with in a very positive way in a lot of states in this country. And there's been a big there's been a lot of hearings recently in Congress, I say a lot, but there's been some hearings in Congress that have really shined a light on how really bad this issue is. And not just for cannabis people, but for anybody who's dealing with the, the IRSs in people's lives because of that, for example, et cetera. You know, and they don't even have to charge you to come along and take your property, take your money, et cetera. They don't even have to charge you criminally at all, ever, and and take you know, your property, you know, the, the one thing that's interesting about the rights that we have protected is that property rights are not protected the same way that our life is under the constitution and in, in the legislation, uh, you know, in, in property should, you know, life, liberty, and property due process. They eliminate a lot of due process when it comes to property rights. That's one of the reasons why uh, they, they use that same scenario in DCF CPS cases where, they're taking children from families for a lot of it has to do with cannabis as well. These things are prominent. So Sessions is a big proponent of civil asset forfeiture. So these things are really, really important, of course, while we have 
you know, one of the, more states won for cannabis than they voted for Hillary Clinton. I mean, when it gets right down to it, you know, this, this is to the advocacy side of the, uh, you know, the anti-prohibition movement. There have been wonderful strides. You know, I don't want it legalized. I want it decriminalized. That's that's what I want. But I'll take whatever. You know, as long as people have access to it, as long as we can grow hemp in this society and we can stop putting people in jail for a plant, sign me up. You want a little bit of tax money because you do it? Whatever. Sign me up for it. Keep people out of jail. Let people do what they want. I'm there. So the, how diligent we have to be and hopefully how well we're able to deal with the, our legislative representatives on the state and local level is important you know i'm happy to report that we have a mayoral candidate in atlanta who as soon as he announced his candidacy came out against cannabis and he's a sitting state senator so we're really really happy to to hear that so that's wonderful something else i want to raise as well is the american bar association uh, just published an article in their journal and i want to touch base with it on it and the, the, the title of the article and you guys will see this on my website later today the title of the article is Lawyers Advising Clients on Marijuana Laws May Run Afoul of Ethics Rules. And this is something I was following earlier in the year. There was another article written about this as well by the ABA. And, and as many of you may know, I sit, on a, I sit on criminal justice committees for the American Bar Association. So I hear about this a lot when we're at conference and et cetera, and they're paying attention to it. So I want to read you a couple of passages on this just so you see another area that is of concern that may cause some roadblocks in the processing of getting rid of prohibition in this country and protecting people who are in states that have medical dispensaries or full legalization, et cetera. So the article talks about once a staple of this country's underground economy, marijuana is steadily becoming an accepted product in the legitimate market. We know this. With more than 30 states or U.S. territories permitting marijuana for various types of medicinal uses, and few states even legalizing its recreational use, lawyers are increasingly being called on to advise clients on their marijuana cultivation businesses. This is what this is. This is why this is so important because we're we're going to be talking to people in Tennessee who are going to be who are pushing for the medical marijuana bill that is presently proposed, written. And this is all relevant to dispensaries or however it's going to be done from a legal standpoint. So a key question is whether a lawyer advising a client on the cultivation, sale, or use of marijuana under state law runs afoul of professional conduct rules, given that such activities are illegal under federal law, which still classifies marijuana as a Schedule I controlled substance, et cetera. Under the CSA, it is illegal to manufacture, distribute, or dispense a controlled substance. In other words, cultivating marijuana, even for medicinal purposes, violates federal law. Again, we're back to the, you know, there's no gray area here. The Board of Professional Conduct in Ohio addressed this question in opinion 2016-6, issued August 5th, which is, as I mentioned, they had been, this had been coming up previously, and this was one of the ones that was following. A month before the state law permitting the cultivation, processing, sale, and use of medical marijuana under the state licensing and regulatory framework that went into effect this past September. So a lawyer violates the Ohio Rules of Professional Conduct if he or she helps a client file an application for a medical for a marijuana license, represents a client before medical marijuana regulatory boards or drafts, or negotiates contracts with vendors for medicinal businesses all legal activities under state law because they are legal under federal law. So, so again, 
the conflict. You know, it's so important that we advocate for the obviously for the removal of of marijuana off the books federally as well. But as you can see, Ohio's uh, bar association has already decided how they're going to deal with this. They're going to say it's an ethics violation. So, unless and until federal law is amended to authorize the use, pro, you know, production, distri- distribution of medical marijuana, a lawyer only may advise a client as to le- the legality of conduct either permitted under state law or prohibited under federal law and explain the scope and application of state and federal law to the client's proposed conduct. But how, but however, this is the most important part here, the lawyer cannot provide the types of legal services necessary for a client to establish and operate a medical marijuana enterprise or to transact with medical marijuana businesses. And, and, And this is the absurdity of our situation, but the seriousness of it. And it's, the same thing, of course, that's been going on with the banking industry, as you know. It, it, people have to maintain large amounts of cash because banks, of course, are, are in fear of both the IRS and the Department of Justice and the other federal agencies from not treating them properly under banking laws because they are, in fact, allowing this money to come in that violates federal law. There's a lawsuit going on about that, as a matter of fact, that that hasn't had any movement lately. And, of course, the the other thing is, is that when you have these lawsuits that involve the federal government, of course, you have to realize that there's a good possibility that the, the, the Trump administration may decide to defend or not defend something differently than what the Obama administration does. And mind you, the Obama administration wasn't doing a very good job in this area either. Unfortunately, you know, another one of these issues of me about him coming back on on his words and what he ran on, unfortunately. So I wanted to highlight these particular issues because they're very important as to the overall the overall process. Excuse me one for a second. I have to control something. Sorry about that. I have a guest and I can't leave the guest home when I come into the studio. I have to bring the guest with me and I'm a. I'm a dog lover, so it goes with the territory. So anyway, uh, back on track. The the uh, these issues are so important. So, for example, as we get into the discussion about what's going on in Tennessee, this of course is a complication. That's part of any passage of any legislation because you have pushback from businesses and professions that are important for the implementation of just just we'll just focus on medical for for the moment for on medical marijuana laws and and of course one of the people that is called in today that i'm happy to see on the board that we'll talk to of course is a doctor and of course i haven't even touched base on the problems that they have you know for example there there are situations where hospitals won't allow doctors to maintain their relationship with them if they in fact prescribe medical marijuana in states that have it legal because of the way the hospitals are funded by the federal government, you, you know, and, and this is this advances the argument to so many different places, you know, the big government thing and why is the federal government involved in this and that, you know, and of course, the federal government also uses the money aspect of how they fund things as bribery to the states to comply. They do this a lot in education, for example, they they love to tell the states, well, you're not going to do that or you're going to lose this money. 
you know, and this is one of the things that's been coming up with the repeal of the ACA going on in Congress or the attempt to or whatever they're going to wind up doing. If you follow it, the governors and the Governors Association already came out and said, listen, we don't want to lose that money that you've been giving us because it will, you know, whatever reason, it'll cause a shortfall because we like it, because, you know, I, I like to fly in my private plane, whatever the reason is. They, they, it, it's an issue because they get all this money, and if they do this repeal, for example, blanketly, then there's a whole bunch of money that is missing from the coffers of the state government. So governors from both sides of the aisle are coming out and saying, no, unless you have a replacement for it, that includes replacing this federal money. And that's how tied up this mess is. So all of this is relevant to the approach. This is why le- passing legislation is so hard on something like this, and it's unique. You know, the situation with cannabis and prohibition is unique in that you're dealing with something that, and people aren't arguing about this, the Tenth Amendment enough in, in this process, in my opinion. It needs to be done more. You know, if I, if, if it's, it's one of the areas that should be addressed if people are arrested federally, of course, <clears throat> and in a state where it's legal, <clears throat> completely legal for whatever reason. And I don't know why it isn't more, because then it gets a chance to go up the chain better. But anyway, it, it, it creates a very complicated situation for this particular <clears throat> issue when you're dealing with talking to legislators and, and the lobbying efforts that go on. You know, forget the lobby from the police for a minute, as, as strong as it is. That's always going to happen. And of course, they're looking at their, <clears throat> excuse me again, their civil asset forfeiture stuff. And they're looking at, you know, the, the of course, we are, we are in a society where we have prison for profit, whether it's privatized or not. The, the, the way it's set up is, a, is ha- it's a profit model. You know, you have the government essentially making profit off of people's backs for various different things. It is, it is really, really absurd uh, what's going on. And, and it, it, is, it is quite unfortunate. So, you know, with that kind of, with that kind of said way, I want to get into our issue with I guess I got to deal with the dog again. One second, please. Well, that's an interesting way to do a show. Having, having a Shih Tzu that is very high maintenance when it comes to being loved in in the studio. Got to love it. Anyway, so so back to the issue. So as I mentioned, we have some people today who are going to talk to us about the medical marijuana legislation. And I, and I guess what I want to do is talk about specifically what that legislation looks like. So I'm going to pull that up and read it to you. All right. So let's look at that. We have, Decriminalization for the decriminalization for the growing, manufacturing, dispersing, and usage of the whole cannabis plant for certain individuals. Affirmative defense for patients and caregivers complying with act, including those having cards issued by other states. Affirmative defense. Hmm. Legal privilege, no crime, for healthcare professionals recommending use. Legal privilege for dispensaries and growers complying with act. Revenues coming from this act, a 5% sales and use tax, will be placed in these categories. 20% uh, 
TBI, specifically earmarked for drug intervention, 10% Sheriff Association for Drug Training, 10% Police Chief Association for Drug Training, 20% DIDD Community, 20% for K-12 Education, 20% for Veterans Court Programs. Wonderful there. License will be required for Medical Cannabis Commission, MC created under the Department of Health, MCC to coordinate and consult with Department of Agriculture, Department of Safety, and Department of Health. The MCC will promulgate rules and pricing for license and safety checks. Cost of license limited to no more than 20% of actual administrative costs. MCC is to be centralized authority for medical cannabis program. Then they get into the GROW. So the GROW, Controlled Cannabis Cultivation, cultivation and manufacturing uh, will hand MCC will handle license to grow the cannabis plant. Tennessee will have 50 grows. The license for the first 15 have to be given to businesses located in distress in a distressed County tier four enhancement County grow will be in a warehouse that has the ability to leave security cameras, locks and secure and security. Each grow authorized, not required to have up to three dispensaries, one dispensary at the grow and two additional storefronts. Grow also authorizes to supply third-party dispensaries and not own or run any dispensaries itself. Grow can be grow only and, not, and is not required to have in-house dispensary. MCC with Department of Safety input will check for security and will also oversee manufacturing with collaboration of Department of Health, secured facility, not warehouse. The dispensary, maximum of 150 dispensaries in state storefront that is able to sell edibles, vape oils, patches, creams, smokables, pills, capsules, edibles, etc., as well as paraphernalia. So that is the general basis of what the Medical Cannabis Act of 2017 is from what I've, from what I've been shown. So at least now you have some of the information about what we're going to be talking about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start bringing in some of the people who are advocating for this legislation and who have a personal relationship with the advocacy for cannabis. And the first person I'm going to bring in is Susan Delay Daniel. Good morning, Susan. Hello. How are you? Good morning, Bobby. I'm doing well. Thanks for Fantastic. having me on. I really appreciate that. No problem. Always, always happy to talk about this issue with people all over the country anytime. So I'm happy that you're here with us. So I guess what we'll do is we'll start a little bit about your journey to the advocacy that you're doing. So tell us a little bit about the whys you are personally involved in advocating for medical marijuana legislation in Tennessee, please. Well, the first reason would be that I have bipolar 2 disorder. And after I was diagnosed, I was put on medication, and I was totally compliant with that. And the side effects and the problems and the things that it did to my life, the ancillary things that people don't think about, like ruining relationships because you're emotionally numb and things like that, I dealt with it because I didn't know that there was an alternative. And then about seven years in, they switched my medication, and due to it going to be turning into a a generic, I guess. And they put me on a new one that was name brand, and it caused some serious problems. And I became suicidal, and I spent seven straight years daily suicidal, hating it, not wanting to be. And I finally just was ready to give up, and I literally was going 
to kill myself. And the plan that I had was to have a friend of mine with bipolar disorder that lived in California to explain to my children later that I didn't really want to have to do it, but I just couldn't take it anymore. And she told me she wanted me to make a deal to wean off the medications and to try medical cannabis. And I told her I would, and I did. And it changed my life. I had become a shut-in. I couldn't drive anymore. It hyped up my, the pills had hyped up my anxiety so bad. And I didn't know that. They kept telling me it was a part of the bipolar disorder. And I believed that. I just assumed it was getting worse. And the the healthcare system here for people on ten care that live off of disability from a disorder like that is a whole different subject. But let's just say that it's not exactly the best you're going to find. And during all that, these people didn't seem to care about what it was doing to my life, how it was ripping apart my family, my health, you know, my very existence of all of that. And the cannabis controlled the bipolar issues. And I lost the anxiety issues, and I lost the suicidal thoughts. In the last five years, I have not had one suicidal thought after spending seven years with them. And that made me passionate about it. And then recently, my father was diagnosed with colon cancer, and he is now in chemo. And if he were able, he's covered in sores because of what this chemo is doing to him. And he stays tired, and he stays hurt. And I know, I see all these stories from my advocacy of people in other states, how they're able to use that to help them get through that and have a better quality of life. And I want that for all Tennesseans, so I fight. Marvelous, marvelous. So what, what, one of the things that I want to highlight, what you say, that I say a lot on this show that's important is from the standpoint of, of the cannabis issue and it being schedule one and it being illegal, et cetera, is that pretty much everybody in society knows that if somebody is uh, having chemotherapy, this is, I mean, I've known about this since I was a kid. And if they smoke a joint, literally, you smoke a joint when you're having chemotherapy, it stops nauseous. So I tell people when you're having a discussion about why this should be legal. I say, well, we all know that cannabis has the same medicinal quality as Rolaids or as Alka-Seltzer. So, which means that it should be sold over the counter for this. If it never does anything else, just, but the, but defeating nauseousness from chemotherapy, then it has, it has enough medicinal value not to be schedule one and to be allowed in our society, because certainly there's no side effects to go along with it. You know, certainly there's never been any proven uh, that people say, and we've been dealing with that since Reef of Madness and before. So I'm glad that you mentioned the chemotherapy part of it. What I want to do before I move into the, the further advocacy is I want to bring on the other guests that are part of the show and have them do the same thing that you did. So I'm going to bring Cicely in on this as well right now. So good morning, Cicely. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> Glad to have you here. So as I, I, as I don't know how much you heard of the conversation that we started with Susan, and I, and I know that you guys know each other and, and, and our fellow advocates in, in Tennessee, but what I want to establish with, with the number of you is your personal journey first. Why are you here? What, what's the purpose of getting you to that point? 
so our listeners know, and the listeners that are new listeners from Tennessee and anybody who listens to the show afterwards, understand what, why and, and the nuts and bolts of the battle that you guys are going through and the reason that you're there. So if you wouldn't mind, Cicely, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit why you are where you are in your life and advocacy for cannabis. Okay. Um, well, I'm Cecily Shamim. I'm the executive director for the Tennessee Cannabis Coalition. Um, we're an advocacy organization that spends a significant amount of our um, focus on educating lawmakers uh, in the public about the public health and public safety data specific to cannabis. Um, we worked closely with uh, city council members that were sponsors of the decriminalization ordinance here in Nashville. Um, and I was uh, one of the people that advised those city council members on the public health and public safety data specific to cannabis. Um, <clears throat> so we, we, we do a lot of uh, that kind of work. We engage um, people in the medical profession. We engage our opposition um, by educating them on the latest uh, data specific to cannabis to try to neutralize um, uh, opposition, particularly from the addiction uh, uh, counseling community, um, one of the main opposers of medical cannabis in the state of Tennessee has been the Tennessee Medical Association for years, and we've been engaging them um, this past year, and we've actually made some headway with that. But I, I want to speak really quickly to um, some of the things that Susan has said, because we, as advocates, we see this all the time when it comes, particularly with people with mental health uh, issues, where we have physicians that are over-prescribing medication um, to the point to where people are simply not functioning. I've had this happen. I have PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder, um, and I've had this happen to me where I've been over-medicated and, and by, by a physician. And fortunately for me, I used to work in psychiatry and research at Vanderbilt, so I'm quite aware of, you know, what to look for in these kinds of situations, but most people aren't. And so we have a society now where we have people that are severely over-medicated. They're suffering from health issues as a result of these pharmaceuticals, and it just cascades, um, and, and it's a crisis. Um, and what we're finding in legal states, in legal medical cannabis states, people are getting their lives back. Um, and they're getting off these dangerous pharmaceuticals. And we see, we see these stories unfold every day with patients where they are, are literally unable to function on the number of pharmaceuticals that doctors have prescribed them. And they go to legal medical states, and they're able to slowly wean off these medications. And let's be really clear. Some of these medications are incredibly difficult to get off of. Um, you know, especially when you're talking about benzodiazepines and anti-anxiety medications, these things are not easy to get off of, and, and they can create a significant amount of suffering. So um, uh, as far as my own, um, uh, the way I made it into the advocacy community, I've, I've been a progressive activist for over 15 years now, and about three years ago, I got a notification about a lobby day um, at the legislature for medical cannabis, and, and I have IBS as well, which, um, as many people who are in the advocacy community know, is linked to an endocannabinoid deficiency along with right. Um, right. fibromyalgia and migraines. Right. And so I literally don't have enough endogenous cannabinoids in my body. Um, so, so I went to lobby day, and I met a woman by the name of Gail Grower, whose uh, granddaughter, Chloe, suffered from intractable seizures and and I walked the halls and, and lobbied lawmakers that day with Gail 
Um, and we didn't get the CBD only bill that session. And between that legislative session and the following one, Chloe died and uh, her granddaughter. And that just hit me in a way that, uh, you know, uh, it hit me really hard. And sure. I had decided sure. at that point, you know, if, she, if this little girl had been in a legal medical state, she would still be alive today. Sure. And this, this is the kind of thing that's happening all over the country where people are suffering and dying in prohibition states because they don't have access to this medicine. So I committed myself to working on this issue and uh, a few years later uh, founded the Tennessee Cannabis Coalition to work on um, kind of bringing other advocacy organizations in the state together to coordinate on campaigns um, to move the laws forward on this issue. You know, that's fantastic. And, and, and like Susan, you brought up something I want to highlight before we move on to Dave and Lori and, and, and others that are on the call. And, and Dr. Matt, I will absolutely get you in here and Melody as well. So one of the things that you talk about that is so very important as far as things people know about every day, and that's PTSD. And of course, the the part that it, the part, the relationship that it has with veterans gets the most uh, the most coverage, I guess you'd say. And, and of course, it is important. There's no question. We all know veterans that are dealing with that issue. Uh, I know some in Tennessee, as a matter of fact, and of course, all around the country. And, and as part of the advocacy uh, that I'm involved with and others that I work with, uh, PTSD is right at the front lines, both in criminal court and in and, and dealing with, with legislation. And PTSD, of course, is not just not just military. You know, you have you have the police yeah. officers and the firemen and and then people who are victims of crimes and whatever the situation is. I mean, it, it, the list is long. And yeah. I, I had the, I had the, <laughs> I had, I don't know if I'd call it the pleasure, but I had a, I had a chance to go after uh, Johnny Isaacson, the Senator who handles the veterans affairs. And I, I got him on tape and huh. I asked him about PTSD and the fact that the VA hospitals, for example, will, will take, uh, will take somebody off of benefits because they test positive in a state where it's legal. And he didn't even have an answer for me. He actually had said that nobody had asked him that question before, which which shows me the lunacy of, of you know, the federal government's involvement in this. But PTSD, right. of, you know, PTSD is so prominent in our society and should be. You know, people have to deal with trauma, whatever, wherever it comes from, in, in, in a way that doesn't cause more problems like these drugs that you mentioned that are hard to get off of. You yeah, know, it, and luckily – cocktail it's ridiculous luckily yeah luckily for us um a lot of the vets are at the forefront of this battle to get access right uh you know for for people that suffer from ptsd right um you know i I work with a lot of vets here and in in other states like colorado as well and and they are definitely leading the charge on this issue and it's because they you know what's happening to the vets is incredibly unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they come back and, and they literally have a word for it. They call it the comeback cocktail that they put yeah. them on when they come back and get diagnosed with PTSD. And some of these guys, these men and women, are on 20, 30 different medications and they can't function. And they, they, they literally, uh, you know, it's literally shutting their bodies down and right. it's ruining their lives. 
the VA right. is ruining their lives on these medications. And so what we're, what we're finding is this, the, the vets that are fortunate enough to be in legal states or move to legal states are able to get off most, if not all, of their medications and switch to cannabis. Now, here's the thing is, you know, we talked to vets in prohibition states. They're trying to medicate with, with black market cannabis. You right. cannot do that. The right. problem is, is if you use a sativa or a high, you know, high sativa strain, you're going to make your anxiety worse. You're not going to get the kind of medicine you need. And that is the big par- problem with prohibition. You know, some of these lawmakers are like, well, they could just get it on the black market. No, you can't. Because depending on what your condition is, you need a specific strain to treat that condition. And well, we, 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 don't want our, we don't want our elected officials telling us that anyway. It's, you know, to, no. to, for them to say that is absurd. It, it, need- you know, they're supposed, to be, they're supposed to be following the Constitution and their oath. So for them to even come out with saying something like that is so irresponsible. Uh, I'm, yeah, hmm. no doubt, no doubt. That, that, that. Oh, elected officials! <laughs> it, it, it's uh, the whole industry of the elected officials and the police and and the way that they are, and as you mentioned, you know the the way that they advocate for the black market stuff. Of course, you know. Yeah, well, why don't you go to the black market? Well, yeah, let's do that, and then I can go get arrested, and I can lose my VA benefits, and then of course all I'm doing is sitting in a cell getting a cocktail. That's even better for me. It, it, right. It's lunacy when they say stuff like that. So. Let's stop right there for a second, and let me bring on Dave next and, and have Dave do the same thing. So good morning, Dave. How are you? Good morning, sir. I'm doing well. Thank you. Fantastic. Glad to have you on the show, and, and I, I see that you've been on for a minute. So I, you've heard what we want to do is, is talk about introduce yourselves and your journey to the advocacy points uh, of advocating for, against prohibition for medical marijuana in the state of Tennessee, if you wouldn't mind. Okay, thank you. Um, well, mine's kind of a, uh, a roundabout story. I had actually started um, two to three years ago because I was um, I, I'm uh, vet of the Army for 15 years, and we had deployed to Iraq uh, in 2009-2010, spent 15 months over there, and came back, and uh, like Cicely was talking about, we've got the, uh, the comeback cocktail. Well, mine wasn't so easy as just a one you know, a one-time deal. They 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 did what I lovingly refer to as uh, shotgun the pills until they figured mm-hmm. you know shoot it shoot something till it finally sticks. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, I I had gone through um, I think probably four to five different you know sets of uh, of pills until they finally decided you know hey this might you know this actually might work so. In that time, I had, uh, you know, I came off some, become seriously depressed, um, attempted suicide, um, then got to, sent to the VA hospital where they they decided that I was fixed again, and then, you know, came back and, uh, or came back home. Then we, we um, I'm sorry, I, uh, then we uh, um, changed up the medication again. So and during that time, started smoking and I was talking to a very good friend of mine who also went to Iraq with me um, and, and he decided he was going to smoke as well so there we uh, there we are and he uh, was open and he was on something like seven different opiates his wife left him of course that's the, the sad the same sad story sure. sure and 
I lost contact with him for a few months, and I was at, finally at home, got a call one night that he had committed suicide because the VA had taken his opiates away, and he couldn't deal with the pressure and pain and the uh, anxiety medicine and all that. So he committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Now, that's probably the best way the best way I can put it without breaking down and having the, uh, you know, the, the the anger and the depression that goes along with that. So now flash forward to just eight months ago and find out my mother's stage four cancer. Mm, Sorry. And uh, thank you. Um, Stage four cancer. And the only medicine that the doctors will prescribe obviously is chemotherapy. Right. Well, you know, when I started asking about, okay, here's, you know, FICO, here's the, you know, the, not the Rick Simpson, obviously, but the the FICO and other stuff like that. Oh, no, we can't do that. Well, why not? So, you know, there's the, there's those questions. It's, my journey to activism has been kind of snaky, but, um, and then I found Susan, um, and she's kind of brought me on board and, and, this is kind of where we ended up now. Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic. You know, you know, again, highlighting different things for different people. We're back to the chemotherapy and the PTSD stuff, which is so mm-hmm. prominent in our society all the time. And these are things, you know, that I'm a veteran and luckily, luckily, and I, and I know how lucky I am, of course, just, just, just for my fellow vets as well. I wasn't, I, I wasn't in the service when we were, we were at the situations that we have been in in the last 20 years let's say I was in the service under Reagan and Reagan for all his posturing was actually rather quiet from a military standpoint Grenada was nothing and and we you know we didn't have these long drawn out situations in the desert storm and desert shield and Afghanistan and Iraq so I didn't have that uh, I didn't have to deal with that luckily for me but I understand because of course I was in during the, the the transition from people who were still in the service from dealing with Vietnam. So I, again, I learned about the PSD side of it very, very young from a, you know, interaction with people about it. And of course, for people who don't know this, you know, they, they didn't have a, a legitimate diagnosis. They didn't agree that PTSD exists. Now, previously there was things called shell shock and stuff, but they actually had dismissed the, the idea of PTSD. So this has been an advocacy situation for a number of areas, and cannabis has always been known. Again, people who are who pay attention, and you know, everybody knows somebody who smokes marijuana. And right. it's just it's just the way it is in our society. Everybody knows somebody who's been affected by prohibition in a negative way. If you if you sit down and actually think about it, we all grew up in neighborhoods with friends and family and cousins and all that stuff. So if it hasn't affected us personally, we know people that it's been involved with. I had a discussion recently about somebody who I know who's in, who works for the police uh, and, and, and essentially uh, was has cancer now and other things going on in his life because of what happened in 9-11 and the things that they used in 9-11. And, and I went to his brother, who's also a cop, I've known since first grade in school, and I, I said, listen, I'm way beyond the, pa- uh, the point of arguing about the, the, the effectiveness of using cannabis even for chemotherapy i don't want to see people suffer you know you you and 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 sicily have brought up particularly about people dying and that's the key here people are dying and so so get a clue and and i was telling him listen i'm not going to argue about whether or not it works we all know it works tell him to use it 
if he's going through that, you know, to, to get some relief because I, you know, I know him my whole life and I'm like, listen, I understand you're a cop or, you know, you're whatever, but you don't need to suffer that much. People don't need to be in pain that much. And this is something that will help. So yeah, it, it is, we have to get past the point of the lunacy of the counter arguments that mean nothing factually. They just don't mean anything factually. You know, if a cop isn't going to use cannabis, who's suffering from, and, and having to use chemotherapy, it's not because of facts. It's because he's breaking a law that shouldn't exist, unfortunately. And, and just a little rant there to go along with it. So I'm going to bring on one more guest that we have in our group to talk about the same thing. And then we can move on to the next step and we can bring Dr. Matt on and, and some other guests we have on the line as well. So uh, good morning, Lori. How are you? I am fine, Bobby. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. So, so as we've been talking, I noticed you've been here online listening and, and so tell us about your journey to your All point right. of activism, please. Mine kind of works hand in hand. Um, about 25, 24 years ago, I was diagnosed with cervical and ovarian cancer. They found it when I became pregnant with my second child. Um, and same year, I lost my husband. I suffered from PTSD also. So what they did is after I had the baby, um, and they immediately did the hysterectomy and started the chemo and stuff. And anybody that knows anything about cancer knows that chemo destroys your immune system. Yes. So you cannot fight what the chemo was killing. It doesn't just kill the cancer. So I started smoking. And because I did, I was able to eat nutritional uh, foods, you know, and keep them down. So that gave me a vice to fight the cancer. And I have been cancer-free now since 25 years. Marvelous. And I, if, it, if it wasn't for the cannabis, I'd have been dead, I'm sure. Um, now, as far as the PTSD, it started flaring up um, really bad a few years back. And I went to try to get help. And like you, somebody mentioned about nobody wants to acknowledge it. Um, now, if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, there's a support group on every corner. Sure. I couldn't find anyone, so I said, the hell with this. I started the East Tennessee PTSD Foundation. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, it's really awesome. And like you said, it's not just for the military anymore. I mean, tragedies can happen to anybody to cause this. Um, so as a representative of the um, of our group, the TMCPAG of East Tennessee, it's important to me to get this information out there because, like you said, so many people are dying. Um, I'm in chronic pain, so they've got me on pain meds, and now they're coming up. They're admitting that they're dangerous because mm-hmm. now what they're doing is they're cutting, as I'm sure you're aware of, I'm also on Valium for the PTSD. So yeah. what they're doing is cutting your medicine back because they're saying now that you can't, you have a choice. Either you can be in pain and have a whacked out head, or you can have a straight head and not be able to get out of bed in the morning. Sure. It is so mixed up. But we can just get the word out, you know, and like you're doing a thank you so much. And you're everybody that. that's Anytime. been on the phone. I mean, we just, we really got to do something because the people that they're cutting the opiates so badly are turning to heroin. It's cheaper. It's easier to get a hold of. 
people are going to be breaking in more crimes. I mean, they're going to be filling up their privatized jails or whatever they are. But they're just that's our solution. You know, okay, well, we've got an opium epidemic, so let's just take the medicine away from them. What kind of solution is that? Who is coming well, up yeah, with this yeah, you raise, I mean, you're raising, again, each of you, of course, and, and I thank you for this, you're raising so many important parts of what's going on here. It is... It's a complicated battle because they've made it complicated, I guess, by design, we could say, or or whatever the reason is. You know, why why you guys have been talking, and, and what I want to do is I want to bring in Dr. Matt, uh, who who has been online listening to this, because I have a question for him relative to the medical profession as well. But let me bring him in and add him to the discussion. Uh, hey, good morning, Dr. Matthew Hine. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Bobby. It's a fantastic show. I appreciate you being here and, and always happy to talk about this issue. So I guess so. let me have you jump in to do the same thing that the others are doing before we get into your profession, if you don't mind. So tell me a little bit about why you're here in the advocacy side of the cannabis issue. Okay. Well, I don't have a personal story to tell. I will just say that I have a background in public health, and I've been following the issue for many years. And I am an advocate of uh, personal freedom and responsibility Mm -hmm. and uh, helping our legislature make decisions that really do balance the need for protecting society on one hand and uh, allowing personal liberties as much as possible on the other hand. And this particular issue, I think, is very, very central uh, we're not going to talk about the drug war right now. We're going to focus on the medical issue. Right. So that's basically how I became involved. So you, one of the things that has popped up in my head, and you know, I don't, I, and I probably should do this more when I when I talk to people involved in public health or who are do, who are doctors or whatever involved in that. The, 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 one of the comments I make to anybody who's advocating against it is, I'm like, so so let's see if. I understand your argument. So the doctors, when people leave states, for example, to be refugees in other states because they can't stay at home when they're in a state that has prohibition. So these doctors in these states where it is legal, at least medically, they're prescribing the cannabis to people for what? What is the ulterior motive here? Because they want people to go smoke a joint because there's no medicinal value? You know, I, I, there are so many, for me personally, when, I, when I'm in my advocacy, there's so many ludicrous parts to the opposition to me. You know, doctors are prescribing cannabis because they're doctors. You know, let's be real here. Not because they get the kickbacks that they get from Big Pharma, for example. Not because they're tied to any of those other aspects. It's because they know that it works. At least that's how I see it. And then the other part of the, 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 the medical side of it is, is Doctors are supposed to give people the best chance to heal and to not suffer as part of the Hippocratic Oath, and yet they aren't advocating, every doctor's not advocating for the ability to do that with cannabis, knowing full well what it does in states where it's illegal. And I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, if you could, however you feel about it personally. I wanted you to talk about those comments, if you would. Okay, Bobby, it, it is complex. I'll try and be as straightforward in answering those two questions. Um, the first one I'm going to tell, just a brief anecdote. I know a gentleman who practices in the state of Tennessee who is associated with the hospice movement, and 
you know, as you can imagine, people at the end of life have uh, chronic pain. Uh, they use opioids. Uh, may have cancer. Right. And he, he will, even though it's not a substance that can be technically prescribed by any physician in terms of the whole plant in the United States because it's a Schedule One. although he can't prescribe it, he will recommend that his patients um, may look into that as, as an alternative. And the reason is because he is aware, okay? That kind of speaks to your second point, which is, Unfortunately, many physicians are not aware. Now, there have been some seminars in Colorado and elsewhere. We may be having one in the near future in Tennessee that will help to educate our medical community about the uh, the scientifically supported applications of right. cannabis and the concerns that may exist and hopefully dispel some myths. Um, there are a lot of myths, <laughs> And there's a lot of good new information coming out about the substance, uh, and physicians need to become educated so that they can uh, live up to their Hippocratic Oath and, and put their patients uh, first. Yeah, no doubt. You know, and and, and it's interesting you, you mentioned the word myths, and, of course, for anyone who has followed the prohibition issue, one of the things that we find in history is the absurdity of some of the myths. You know, we're back to reefer madness. If you go, if you go that far back, for example, and how they used to advocate that your white wife or the, your white daughter will get involved with the black guy because she's smoking weed. And, you know, and, and this is stuff that they would, you know, literally put on billboards back then because the, the absurdity of the myth part of this in that regard is different in the medical community, of course, especially if you're not being taught it through medical school, obviously. That, that's one of the, the glaring things. But it's, it's the way the myths have gone. You know, we have people who still believe that, you know, there, there's the behavioral aspect of using cannabis will do some of the things that they discuss in those reefer madness days or have these side effects that don't exist. It's, it, it's, I, it's mind-boggling. If I could yes, just please. jump in, Bobby, it, it appears to me that, that based upon my conversations with legislators, uh, the concerns are um, partially based upon uh, um, a misunderstanding of the facts and partially based upon perhaps some emotional or be it religious uh, perspectives, Sure. Uh, some, some personal values that, that they think are perhaps being violated. And in particular, you know, from a public health standpoint, there's concern about uh, kids getting a hold of, you know, medical marijuana. And the, the studies are out now. Um, that's not a concern. Uh, right. In states where, it, where, where recreational cannabis is legal, such as Washington State, yeah, there was a brief increase in the use of teen, uh, by teenagers, but then it kind of leveled down. Right. And as far as concerns about increased traffic fatalities, well, Colorado's experience has proven that to be false. Right. While there may be some increased uh, traffic accidents among uh, males of a certain age, if you control for their age and their gender, cannabis is not related to increased traffic accidents, let alone right. traffic fatalities. Right. Um, and so, you know, if, if you take a look at the risk reduction uh, and, and you're trying to balance out the potential risks and benefits, uh, it's pretty clear that, that properly regulated, medically recommended cannabis for particular patients uh, is is clearly uh, a good thing. Now, some legislators don't like the idea of smoking anything, and some legislators don't like the idea of intoxication. Bottom right. line is that 
we have, as mentioned before, uh, an, ep- uh, an opioid epidemic. Tennessee is number two uh, right. uh, behind Alabama in terms of the per capita death rate from opioid overdose in the country, and it's a huge problem. And the, the, the Tennessee Medical Association, Tennessee uh, health, uh, our, our public health uh, officials are doing everything they can with the available tools we, that we have to address right. this horrible problem. Um, but unfortunately, once again, they're not aware that the use of a relatively non-intoxicating uh, CBD, uh, cannabidiol oil, um, right. that has, you know, 4 or 5% THC uh, will reduce the opioid death rate uh, by 30% or so. There are multiple states right. that have published uh, their experience, and there's a current article, it's not that I've got on the Tennessean, uh, Tennessean.com news uh, website that summarizes these studies as it speaks directly to the opioid crisis. So, you know, is it possible to provide cannabis without smoking? Yes. Is it possible to provide cannabis without intoxication? Yes. So these arguments really can go away and they can be controlled for in the legislation and the administration. Yeah, that, those are really, you know, it, from a strategy standpoint even, in order to get the door open, in order to allow the – because it's my, one of the things that would happen, and you raised so many good points. I'm so glad that that you came onto the show. The 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 issues – of information become easy. You get more access locally to the information if, in fact, they open the door and allow the the medical marijuana bill to pass, even in a way that you're talking about. Because then, of course, there are there are the studies and there are the responses, and they actually can see what's happening. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the children aspect, and there was a battle recently in New Jersey where they have medical marijuana, and they have a governor who is completely against it and also completely against also in support of prohibition in every way. He's, he's actually a little bit, he's actually a little bit off balance like Jeff Sessions is in my view, at least in the rhetoric. So, so, but they went to court on two different situations for children to be allowed to have access to their prescriptions while they're in school even. And, and, and it was the, the judge ruled in their favor. And now it actually is, a law that allows for that. So again, there's, as you mentioned, there is evidence out there that shows how this can be done properly and why, and what are, you know, what are the reasons that, that it is done for properly. Uh, and, and please uh, make, you know, please make sure that the articles that you mentioned are passed around and I can get to them because certainly this is information that needs to go out there as much as possible on top of what you've already done. And, and so we all, because I haven't read what you're talking about in Tennessee, but I did read about it in Alabama, and I did just read an article about it in West Virginia that that we put out for information about the amount of opioids that are being sold in the state was yeah, astronomical. Yeah, you know, Time, Time Magazine had an article in 2016 that basically headlined the question. It said, "Is are, are cannabinoids uh, a gateway out of opioid overdose?" Yes, Doctor Oz basically had a had a, an episode that featured um, the use of uh, THC and cannabidiol to help people wean off of methadone. So, I mean, it's and, and the, 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 we, we have insufficient numbers of chronic pain clinics. Suboxone is expensive. And an earlier guest made the point that people are going on the street. They're getting heroin, which is less expensive. They're getting right. fentanyl and, and, and uh, a knockoff fentanyl, which is, you know, in, in some cases like an elephant tranquilizer and, and right. causing multiple deaths. 
and all this can be prevented. Just a final comment. In terms of action, what's most effective is for individuals to have a face-to-face conversation with your legislator. If you are Mm, unable to get your face in front of their face and talk over the table over a cup of coffee, give them your personal story and and help them understand. Because when when you put a personal face on it and it's your elected representative, they will probably listen. And if you can't get in front of their face, by all means – Keep trying until you get them on the telephone and have a personal conversation. That is the most effective way to move forward. That is such a great point in advocacy when you're dealing with elected officials, absolutely at the local level particularly. That is so very important, everybody. It, 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 dealing with your elected officials on a face-to-face basis as much as possible. I, I mean, it, it, it's what it's all about, really, when it comes to advocacy and trying to change laws without a doubt. It's frustrating sometimes, but that's okay. Because what's the alternative? As you said, that's a very, another very good point. I'm going to jump to another patient who I happened to meet recently as well, and I'm going to have her tell a story. And then I want to get into the side about what the legislation's about, et cetera. So I'm going to bring Melody on. So how are you doing this morning, Melody? I'm doing fine. Good to talk to you. Fantastic. So, uh, again, I know that you're an advocate, and I wanted wanted you to share your personal journey uh, with us as well. And then I want to get into the the legislation with everybody. So if you wouldn't introduce yourself and talk a little bit about why you're an advocate. Okay, um, I'm Melody Cashin. Um, I'm 43. I have three daughters and a grandson, and um, I have um, a condition called Charcot-Marie-Tooth. It's a type of muscular dystrophy that's genetic and progressive. Um, I started having symptoms about 18, although I had, looking back, I had always had symptoms, and um, I went 15 years that they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, um, but the doctors at that time were very free with giving me painkillers and um, got me hooked on painkillers. Um, when I was 35, I finally got correctly diagnosed and found out that what I had, that there was no treatment and no cure and that I had also passed it to two of my daughters. Um, I have since then, um, they had me, at that time they had me on methadone and they had me on fentanyl, and um, I have since been able to almost completely wean down off the opiates um, just using medical cannabis. That's fantastic. You, You know, one of the things I want to cover particularly a, later, a little later in the call is is the is what the medical side of cannabis is really about with our bodies, the connection with it. So let, so let me get into the the legislation with everybody, and I'm and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start with you again, Susan. So uh, the legislation that is pr- is proposed, uh, the Medical Marijuana Act of 2017. Talk about where that came from and where that is right now. One second, I had put it on speaker, so let me put it back to my ear. Okay, well, let me say this first. Everybody that knows me knows that in Tennessee, I am a flaming liberal, which is definitely a minority. However, on this particular subject, because it is so important and people are suffering, I consider it to be a completely bipartisan subject. I'm bipartisan on several things, but especially this. Socially, I tend to be more liberal. 
this bill, while it's not, it doesn't make a lot of people happy in the community. You know, I run a Facebook page that where I deal with the everyday people that stay in Facebook, you know, your factory workers, your Dollar General store workers, the Walmart workers, just us average people like me. And one of the biggest complaints is that, you know, it didn't doesn't have a home grow and you can't smoke. And you can in other states, and we should have the same rights because, as you know, here in the South, we're real big on certain having our rights, which is fine. I agree. But there comes a time when you have to put that to the side and say, okay, if I can't have what I think should be there, I'm definitely willing to split down the middle here and get something that helps these suffering people. And that is where me and the people that run the Tennessee Medical Cannabis Patients and Activists group page on Facebook try to relate between the people like Dr. Matt and Normal and and Sicily and these people and be an asset to them and let them, you know, conduit through us to reach regular people that need to hear what they're saying because a lot of people, they don't pay attention to that. So our point here is while, like, case in point, I'll give you an example. Dave that spoke earlier, the veteran, he and I have met through this, and he's uh, born and, you know, bred here in Tennessee as well. He's a conservative gentleman, and I'm liberal. Now, we agree on this issue, and we don't talk about other issues. We have complete respect for each other because of the way we handle ourselves with this issue. And that's how we're looking for the people of Tennessee to do this year. We don't want this bill to get scuttled and messed up because a lot of people are fractured over details that can be worked out in later. In all honesty, I cannot say I've ever seen a state start off with a stellar medical marijuana program. It always starts out with something that everybody thinks needs work, and it always ends up, as you pointed out with what happened in New Jersey, getting said work done. So my opinion at this point was that we need to focus on that. And being in a red conservative state in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of people that don't use it or don't need it that are still very agreeable. Seventy percent of Tennesseans agree by the polls, by respected polls here in this state, that we need a medical marijuana program. Now, the numbers for recreational are less. And because of that, you know, that's a sticking point with a lot of politicians here is that they think getting a medical program is basically a foot in the door to recreational. And that attitude in the opinion of the regular everyday suffering Tennessean is a little pigheaded in that we think you don't let people suffer in need and be miserable and suicidal or taking so many pills that they can't function or they become an addict because that's the legal way to do it. When there is something less addictive than sugar and caffeine that's never killed anyone in the entire history of mankind, be illegal and go to jail and be on probation and get locked up and have to worry about all these things that civil actual force picture, you know, I mean, all these things happen. It happens to people I know. It has happened to me. And it's not fun. Like, you, it, it's just wrong. So we're just advocating to get a decent little medical marijuana program, and this is a good bill. It's not a perfect bill. There, I don't think has ever been a perfect one, in my opinion. You know, I'm sure other people disagree. 
But the main point I would like to make on that is that we could use the social media community that we've all built up, this big web between all of these different groups and areas to work together to help educate these lawmakers, you know, where all this stuff is out there and easy to find. So that's what we've been Bobby, trying to do. Bobby, can I speak uh, uh, to, to, the, the, to the issue you about, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to speak to something that Susan said because you know we are in a very conservative state and that's the mm. really interesting thing about this bill is that so the sponsor I. of this the, the, the sponsor of this bill is a religious conservative Republican that mm-hmm. did his homework on medical cannabis Jeremy Faison he mm-hmm. he started out by sponsoring hemp legislation um, several years ago and he got it through and he started doing his homework and he got more interested in it. Um, and then he, he, he got more information on CBD-only oils. And, and, and the more he dug in, the more he realized that, that this is safe medicine and it's helping a lot of people. And he's made several trips out to Colorado, Representative Jeremy Faison. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I really have to give a significant amount of credit to him for what he's done because, you know, coming from the perspective that he is being conservative and religious, you would not necessarily <laughs> – you know, see see something like this um, be supported by someone that 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 espouses well, the kind of that he does. You know, I, but I, he I, really. I, I, go ahead. I, I just I really give him a lot of credit. I have a lot of love for Jeremy for for what he's done on this issue because he he is he is going on the facts on this and he's leading the charge on it where where we simply haven't had that kind of support from members of the legislature in Tennessee and I've I've got a few details about the bill in front of me if you want to if you want me to I do but let, let me let me let me cut in let, yeah let me cut in for I could no I want you to continue but let, let me cut in and say something sure. about representative Faison which which is marvelous that this is this is marvelous stuff that you're saying you know, one of the things that, and Susan touched on it, you're touching on it as well. One of the things that is, is it is not only uh, crucial, but also a little dangerous, is the rhetoric of labels. You know, I, I don't even know if there's a label for me, other than that I'm certainly not partisan and I won't tie myself to a party. But, you know, the, you know I live in Georgia. You know, you know I, I've lived in the South for a long time, on and off. Uh, my military was in the South, for example. And so, I you know, I understand the ideology, you know, I, I – for example, when I was in the Navy in, in Virginia Beach and I was watching the Christian Broadcasting Network, and I'll never forget this. This is why I can bring it up. It, it is Star Trek, an episode of Star Trek. They played it, the reruns from the show in the 60s, and they actually censored the word heck because in, in, I went and I went and looked up what it was, and they actually censored it. So I understand the, the, the extremist side of it, but, but I, I – it is. It, you, you must be cautious in in the label world because you know that there are. I can tell you firsthand that there are a lot of people who could call themselves conservative and or religious that are on the side of anti-prohibition for a number of different reasons, even if it is not involving medical. And he's obviously proof of that. Uh, you know, somebody who is, as you mentioned, and and I'm so glad you said it this way, that he's looking at the facts because they all have to do it. I mean, I can sit here and go mm-hmm. through a litany of, of people who are progressive and flaming liberals, as Susan described herself, who absolutely have no clue about this issue sure. and are on the wrong side of it. You know, we have, particularly in Washington, if he really gets down to it. So what he's doing yeah. is, is, is the right thing for any elected official to do, and I, and I applaud him. I, I join you in applauding him. You know, do the research. Go, go to a state where the, where the information is more available. And you mentioned hemp. Well, Kentucky is a big hemp 
uh, advocacy state from the from the conservative mm-hmm. side as well. So it's wonderful <laughs> to hear that, and I echo what you're saying. So go ahead and talk about some of the nuts and bolts of the legislation, please. Um, well, um, I've, uh, the conditions that are going to be covered under this bill are cancer, HIV, AIDS, uh, ALS, so which is Lou Gehrig's uh, sure. PTSD, MS, painful peripheral neuropathy, intractable pain, refractory seizures, seizure disorder, spasticity, Parkinson's disease, and cerebral palsy. That's a, that's a pretty good list. Um, given Better than the list we have in Georgia. Yeah, it's, a, it's 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 significantly better than than the last medical cannabis bill we had in Tennessee. Um, one of the things that um, we we see here is that as far as grows, how many grows we're going to have in Tennessee. Right now, they've they've got it set for 50 grows. I think that's significantly low, um, depending on how many how much square footage and plant count they give those grows. You know, obviously, it's going to be something sure. that needs to be discussed. Each each one of those grows is going to be authorized but not required to have up to three dispensaries, and right. there will be a maximum of 100, uh, 150 dispensaries in the state. And right. as far as the storefronts go, they're going to be, they're, as far as the bill goes, they'll be able to sell edibles, vapes, oils, patches, creams, right. smokables, pills, capsules, edibles, et cetera. Um, and right. paraf- as well as paraphernalia, so it does include smokables. Um, right. That may end up getting taken out, depending on um, where we go with uh, with with educating the lawmakers on this as as we move forward on this issue. But um, right. I want to go back really quickly, and I'll, I'll try to be brief uh, to something that uh, Dr. Matt said, and it had to do with with prohibition. And we talk about. Um, we talk a lot about public health and public safety when we talk about this issue, especially when it comes to medical cannabis. But in terms of adult use and, and, and prohibition in general, when you look at the public health, it, public health outcomes um, in terms of, of what we see um, in terms of prohibition and what prohibition does to po- public health outcomes, when, when you look at prohibition, when people are getting arrested for using cannabis, they lose their ability to get financial aid. They lose their ability to get employment. They lose their ability to get housing. That, that directly affects health outcomes for people. It, it directly affects their ability to get health care. It directly affects their ability to live in a, in a, in a healthy environment. Um, and, and also in terms of in, the enforcement of prohibition, you know, obviously we know no one has ever died from cannabis, from using right. cannabis, but countless people have died in the war against cannabis. Absolutely. People die all the time because of the way we enforce these laws, and that has a direct impact on public health and public safety. You know, when you look at the kind of raids that happen to enforce prohibition of cannabis, it gets really dangerous and people die. So Without that needs to be part, that absolutely needs to be a part of the discussion when it comes to cannabis legalization and prohibition and, and how it affects our communities. Well, well, it, it, it has to be for, if, if for no other reason, then one of the bigger lobbies that you have against you are the law enforcement and the prison communities. Uh, unfortunately, sure. because that, and particularly in in states like Tennessee, politically, privatization from the probation level through the uh, services, whether it's felony and misdemeanor, and then you have the prison transportation companies that are contracted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then and then of course you have 
uh, those other items that you mentioned. And then, of course, you have the police who who have all these funds. You know, they get. They, 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 I mentioned I mentioned how the federal government is involved in the money aspect of this. Again, this is another way that they are allowed to get money, task force money, or equipment, or all of these things that you that are part of what you say that extend it. So, and you cannot avoid the discussion, in, in my view, as well. Uh, at the table with the elected officials because they're going to hear it from the other side. You know, the prosecutors will come out against it, you know, uh, talking about this, particularly if it gets to the point where they want to talk about uh, decriminalization or over, over, overall legalization for any use, you know, that these people will show up, they'll, they'll give them their so-called expertise. And of course the area that they lack any information in is the factual stuff that, for example, representative Faison is doing, and can be mm-hmm. countered properly because all they talk about is, you know, the need to have societal standards and that it's illegal federally. And, and, you know, this it's, it, but, you know, I, I'll tell, I'll tell everybody a story real quick and I'll, I'll let you back in. I'll tell you somebody a story about the, some, some of the, the, the issues that'll come up against. I know a person who I love dearly who previously had been involved in a, in a, in a marital relationship that had a, a extended amount of abuse in it. And the per- one of the one of the traits of the person, uh, her husband, that and, and that it was horrible. There was sexual abuse of the children, all kinds of bad things that go there. And he and he had mental problems. But one of the things that he did all the time was smoke marijuana. So as a result, because her and I have talked about this, as a result, there is no way that she'll ever make the journey of agreeing that it should exist in whatever level because she experienced it in a way that is so negative. Well, those things are relevant. You know, we have to kind of be, uh, we have to understand people's personal stories, which is one of the reasons why I like giving them in these kind of conversations. And so there are a lot of things that we have to deal with across the table. And, and of course, my conversation with her is that, you know, it really wasn't the marijuana. It was that he was mental, but it'll never work because she had to live through this and how he would smoke and all that other stuff. You know, it's going on. So there are a lot of things that we have to deal with. So go ahead, go on and, and, and fill us in some more Sicily news. Yeah, uh, well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, domestic, there was a study that uh, came out, it was probably several years ago, that, that showed that uh, uh, couples that consume cannabis have a lower incidence of domestic violence. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Um, by and large, I mean, we do hear, you know, stories like this, uh, uh, you know, where, you know, there are abusive situations, but you're, you're right. It, it, it typically does not have anything to do with cannabis. And in fact, no, it doesn't. Well, no. It, it, most no. of the time it, it, it may have helped alleviate some of, of that violence. Um, um, it, it's, you know, it's possible exactly. it might have alleviated exactly. some of that violence. Um, but, you know, as, as far as, you know, law enforcement goes, just going back to that, I mean, we're, we are seeing some pushback um, by by officials in some states, even in, in the deep conservative south like, south, like Houston, for instance, the district attorney down there has said that they are not going to enforce, they're not going to arrest people for right. use and possession anymore. So, right. you know, we're, we're seeing some common sense approach. And, and the thing is, you know, we're going to have seven more states that are looking at legalizing adult use in 2017. Right. This issue is not going away, and it simply is not going to make any sense at some point for the federal government to continue to throw money at trying to enforce these 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 laws, these unjust laws. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and 
we need to we need to we need to look at that from a, a fiscal perspective as well. I mean, it just doesn't. And, and sometimes that's the only way you can get through to some of these legislators. I mean, if you always pushing hard for you know informing them about public health and public safety issues is is really important because that that's mostly their main priority. But in terms of fiscal issues, obviously they've got to focus on that as well. Bobby, yes. uh, could I just jump back in for a quick second here? Yes, please, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to help people understand the history, you know, um, prior to 1930, cannabis was part of the United States pharmacopoeia. Physicians right. could prescribe it. It was used, it's been used for thousands of years historically to treat a, a number of, of conditions. It's reported that uh, Queen Elizabeth's physician prescribed it to her to help treat menstrual cramps. Um, right. The reason that it's currently in Schedule One is not a scientific decision. That was no, a political not. decision. It was, an, right. it was an act of Congress uh, as part of the, uh, Nixon's response, uh, I believe, That's to right. the, the, the war on drugs. And, and well, it was, it was the anti-war movement. The reason it's so difficult to take out of Schedule 1 is that now the DEA has rejected two separate attempts to have it rescheduled. Um, there's a federal uh, act that has not it's been bottled up in the – uh, Chuck Grassley's committee in the Senate is called the CARES Act that right. would basically allow the rescheduling of, of cannabis uh, on the federal level. But what happened, the most recent uh, appeal is, uh, and it was uh, on the behest, I think, of the uh, former governors of two states that have uh, medical marijuana legal, was that they kicked it over to the FDA and, and deferred to the FDA's decision. And the bottom line is, if you can't, as a pharmaceutical company, make a profit, by patenting a, a specific substance, and then you have to pay for FDA phase one, phase two, phase three trials, you're not going to go ahead and attempt to get it through FDA approval. And right. that's it's occurred for what's called Marinol, and Marinol is synthetic right. THC. Marinol right. is the 100% uh, psychoactive component, and I could prescribe that to somebody today. It's approved right. for... You know, nausea in chemotherapy, it's approved for AIDS-wasting syndrome to, as an appetite suppressant. Right. Physicians today could actually prescribe that in low doses uh, as a component of helping people get off of opioids. But the people who are trying to use that pure THC often don't like that because it has psychoactive side effects. But right. that's paradoxically legal because it was a man-made synthetic molecule then it was patented. Then it went through the FDA process. Then the company can make profit, you see. But right. this will never occur with the whole plant. So this is why more than half of all the states in our country have uh, provided well-regulated programs wherein patients can have access to the whole plant. There's something called the entourage effect, which basically means it's not just one specific cannabinoid, not just the THC. But there, there are dozens of the THC, uh, of, of the, uh, pardon me, the cannabinoid compounds, terpenes, and they come in many different uh, varieties depending upon the genetic strain of the plant. And as one of your guests pointed out before, some of these are better for some conditions, some of these are better for other right. conditions. But, right. you know, it, for, for states, and, and, and interestingly, in Tennessee, some of the legislators are big advocates of state rights. And once they understand that there's a unjustified uh, uh, prohibition at the federal level, and you say, well, yeah, but, but there's a reason why it's still, uh, you know, Schedule 1 and it doesn't make any sense. They won't change that. 
don't you have the right at the state level to make your own decisions? They're open to that argument. Yeah, no doubt. And and I want to highlight two areas of what you just said, because it's actually worse than what you described as far as one of the things, well, two of the things, but it is worse than what you described. What the, the particular issue under Nixon was so, I mean, he had created a, a basically a, a panel of experts to look into cannabis and he rejected their findings, their, their actual findings that cannabis should be decriminalized. And, you know, we now know from whistleblowers and from documentation that his choice to do this was because he wanted to be able to stomp on the anti-war movement and stomp on minorities. I mean, this is literally documented stuff from our president of the United States back then, which is which, which just gives the and these are some of the things that are very hard to talk about to elected officials, especially when you talk about labels again, where you say, well, you know. President Nixon, and of course, there are people who, I don't know, you can't attack President Nixon. You know, he, all these things that he did were great, except until you get the Watergate. And then to talk about what you mentioned about the DEA, it, it, you know, one of the things that people don't realize that has happened or don't know, because it's not, it's, uh, High Times is about the only people that talked about this for a number of years until Normal got into it, is that the court, the Federal Circuit Court, wouldn't even allow an argument to be made to it to discuss the lunacy of cannabis being Schedule 1. So for years, advocates would go to the Federal Circuit, which, is gov- which governs this particular side of our, of, of our uh, legal process, and, uh, and, and fight to have the discussion just to get to, to, about the scheduling of it. And they weren't even allowed to argue the merits. The case was not even allowed to go in front of it. And, there, and from a legal standpoint, there, were, there, there is no – proper legal reason for that to happen in advocacy because we all know that access to the courts is a first amendment thing so you can bring any issue to the court to be heard as long as it's you know a a, a real issue which this certainly was and they would not even allow it to be briefed not even discussed in open court but not even allow it to be briefed this went on for decades so the dea doing what you described is just on top of all of this and and that's how where we have Knock down that door at least. Those doors have been knocked down to a degree, and, and the DEA now has to be at the table to a, to a point you know, that, that because of all the states that are doing it. So you raise some really marvelous points that we want to highlight. Um, okay, so we're getting, we're getting towards the end of the show, and, and we do have a, a, a Tennessee medical patient that wanted to talk, and I want to bring him in. His name is Michael Brooks, and, and I want to and hear want his story as well. Story Hello, Michael. Well. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, sir. I'm doing fair to middle Fantastic. Can you turn down the, the speaker that you have so we can just talk over the phone? Because you're uh, yes, in the background. Sir. Yes, sir. Thank Give you. Just a sec. Certainly. Can you hear me? I can, perfectly. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Yes, sir. I was just laid back on the couch listening to it. And, uh, yeah, I was Fantastic. Uh, feedback. Uh, yes, my name is Michael Brooks, and I'm a resident of the state of Tennessee. And, uh, Never would have considered myself being an advocate five years ago uh, until it hit home. Uh, As a lot of people will find out through the course of their life that uh, we're living in an age where many of our foods are processed, uh, our our meats are filled with uh, (laughs) growth uh, hormones, and uh, it's having an effect on us tremendously across the board in the medical community. It's just overwhelming a medical community and and causing... uh, a lot, a lot of unnecessary spending. Uh, 
in the state of Tennessee. What, what got me involved was uh, I'd suffered for, with hepatitis C. I found out about 18 years ago that I had hepatitis C. Well, it wasn't manifesting in any of the symptoms and really didn't have time to take off to be sick or to take treatment. And by the time sure. it started really affecting me, found out it was too late in the game for myself. Uh, I had I had a critically low blood platelet count of around 8,000, got a little bit lower than that, and I, and I developed a, uh, acquired hemophilia, uh, chronic uh, pancreatitis, uh, chronic gout. Uh, it, it, it was destroying my entire body. Sure. And I was on the Internet searching for health remedies, things I could do to prolong my life because I just – uh, my wife and I were blessed with our firstborn son about, about the time that I I became very sick very quick. So I had to live. I had to survive. Um, sure. And I ran across the subject of cannabis and uh, the uh, cannabis oils uh, through the Phoenix Tears Foundation. And uh, I looked these people up, and uh, Dr. Bob Malamede and Gendrich Bear and Janet Sweeney, they, were, they all became actively involved in the and uh, educate me uh, to, to the marvelous wonders of this plant. Uh, I had no idea that it had so many medicinal properties, uh, and that's been probably about four or five years ago. And, and I have, uh, as of since, uh, I got to a point where I was bleeding out of my eyes uh, because of the acute hemophilia. I'm 6'2 and got down to 123 pounds. Mm. Okay, it's time to do something. So we became the Parse Cannabis Refugees and went to the more compassionate states to be treated. My wife also had hepatitis C, and, and it totally eradicated it from her body as well as it did mine in seven months. So wow. I suffered my entire adult life uh, with taxpayer costs of more than $1 million at my medical expenses. It did nothing for my disease. I, I was addicted to uh Benzodiazepines, uh, suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a reoccurring theme that I see happening through this broadcast that many of us uh, find ourselves so traumatized from our own personal experiences and major depression that they start throwing uh, all types of pharmaceutical medications at us. Uh, My wife suffered the most from from post-traumatic stress disorder. She was watching me die on a daily basis. While we were sure. bringing a child into the world, it was a very complex situation. Uh, uh, let's see, where was I? Uh, I heard the doc, the good doctor was uh, that was just on. He was talking about the prescriptions for Marinol. I'm a, I myself uh, was receiving Marinol, five milligrams, uh, three times daily, and it is synthetic, but it contains no THC, no delta nine whatsoever. And that seemed to be the trick. That that was what absolutely – I had a zero uh, – I had a negative uh, doctor's report on my hepatitis C after 18 years. It was non-detectable. So my doctor is now also of the mind that I should proceed with that treatment, even if it involves travel. But it comes, mm-hmm. becomes more complex. So here here's the ripple effect of this uh, wonderful medication – being forbidden to us in the state of Tennessee, after all of the travels and and the wonderful progress and the negative results that my wife and I got from the hepatitis C and all the suffering involved with that, uh, 
we were blessed with yet another son on the way. I became very interested in life and very healthy sure. once again. Sure. And uh, so we had to move into a, another house to accommodate our growing family. And within two months, the whole family came down with uh, lead poisoning. And it affected uh, my wife was four and a half months pregnant at the time. And I had a one-year-old. And uh, uh, his cognitive abilities were compromised more than 30%. And we had to bring in some people to help him, bring him back up to speed. And uh, there was just very little access in the rural areas of Tennessee where we live for people, for professionals to come in. So I reached out to the Department of Children's Services and uh, in the hopes that they would be able to provide children's services. Well, they became actively involved in our lives immediately uh-huh. and uh, did provide help for my young son. But part of their uh, procedure is to drug test uh, people uh, who get involved with their agency, and they actually said that I had the highest count of THC recorded in Tennessee state history. I simply laughed and said, well, that's great. That's what saved my life. But uh, I was given 72 hours to be out of my own home because yeah. I was dealing with an illicit substance to the magnitude that it produced those amounts. Within 38 hours, we were told to give our children over to the state, and they've been in state's custody for 15 months. That's 90% of my youngest son's life and 80% of my oldest son's life. Uh, I'm still constantly being drug tested. I'm forbidden my constitutional rights to travel to any state that I see fit and obey the laws of the land, that if I have any trace of THC in my body, that I will not, we will not get our children back. So I'm, I'm forced back into disease uh, after after the wonderful results that the medication provided, and I have doctors document I have documentations throughout 15 years of treatment, and then I have a three pager. But it would fill a dolly up. I'd need a dolly to sure. a million dollars worth of medical records around, and then I have a three page synopsis of what the cannabinoids did for my body and totally eradicated the disease from my body. <laughs> it was undetectable. But my pancreas, spleen, kidneys were all functioning at normal levels. My blood count was coming up. I was becoming alive. I had forgotten what it was like to have a quality of life like that. I was able to sure. get out in the yard and do cartwheels. I'm 50 years old, man. <laughs> sure. No, it, you know, it's... And you, 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 and, and I, I, we're getting towards the latest show, but I want to highlight something that you said, particularly for Representative Faison. Um, I work in advocacy uh, for the situation that you're describing heavily. I, I, I'm an advocate for the National Association for Counsel for Children. I sit on the Family Law Committee for the American Bar Association, and I can tell you, without uncertain right. terms, that that what's happening to you is is so common, way too common in this country and in your state relative to removal of children because of cannabis. And, and I say this for a number of reasons, and, and, and I am addressing, because this is something I think that you guys should talk to Representative Faison about as well. The, the, I have been in communication with him. That, that's fantastic. The, the thing about <laughs> this is, is that in and of itself, in every state, in and of itself, drug use is not a viable reason in and of itself to separate children from their from their home legally and and yet it's happening only for that reason because of the distortions of the law and because of 
of the way that the states, and this is, again, this is also tied to federal money because they get Absolutely. paid. They get paid to have your children. And they More use than $100,000 per year per that child. Is correct. That is correct. With incentives, cash incentives to the caseworker that actually that is correct. finalize the adoption. So it, it, it's just kids for cash. It's, it's human trafficking. That is exactly right. It is exactly right. And, and, and they can eliminate this problem. You know, CPS has its marvelous work. I mean, you went to them. It's not the other way around. I mean, it, this is why this is so I, disgusting. I called them. Right. This is what. This is why this is so, uh, another example of of how disgusting this uh, this this the situation is, is that, that this solves that problem in, in for his Tennessean people because that the, there is no behavioral issues and there's there's nothing that that ties cannabis to anything negative relative to this. And even if a, a person is is a bad drug user, you know the drugs that really harm uh, the yeah. body. Etc. It is still, in and of itself, not reason enough to do this, and yet they're doing it all over the country, and, and it's unfortunate. And in the states where, and even in states where cannabis is legal, they still haven't solved this problem 100%, unfortunately. And they should, because I, 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 the, the absurdity of people being able to get healthy and yet losing their children is, is just beyond, is beyond words. So I thank you so much for sharing that. I don't mean to cut you off, but I've got to move on in the show. We're down to the last 15 minutes. Thank you so much, Michael. And I, I please, really appreciate the opportunity. You know, please talk, to me, please talk to me offline, off the show. I have no problem with directing you at people. I know that there's attorneys in Tennessee that, that help this, that, that are advocates in this cause, that belong to the NACC. There's, a, there's marvelous attorneys around all around the country that know a lot about this. So please contact me offline if you like as well. And, and I, I'm around. And, and so are the other people on this call. So thank you for joining in and, and uh, appreciate you uh, sharing that story. Thank you, sir, for your good work, and I'd like to say thank you, Susan Daniel, for uh, making this happen, and uh, may God bless us all. We're looking for uh, freedom. Uh, we're looking We're looking to have our constitutional rights and civil liberties uh, back for we the people, and I thank you. I'll leave you on that note. God bless your Fantastic. work, sir. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So, so I, in closing, everybody, and, and I, I want to ask everybody a question that I'm sure you have either heard before or that you need to be prepared for. And, I, and I'd like you to give me the quick answer. Everybody that's, that's, that I've talked to on the call, I want you to give me the quick answers because I, I even asked this of Susan and Melody when I met them uh, last week. Why don't you leave the state of Tennessee? And, and, and I think this is an important question, and, and, and every, I'm sure all of you have a wonderful answer. So I, I want to start with you, Susan. Why, why don't you leave the state of Tennessee? Well, Bobby, I was born here. My roots are here. My family's here. My grandmother's still alive here at almost 100 years old. My family has a farm in Williamson County that they've owned since the early 1800s. It's not she owns the last couple of acres. I can't walk all away from all of that and my grandchildren for my medicine to make me feel better. That's my answer. Perfect. Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, Dave. Yes. Yes. Um, why don't you Why don't you leave Tennessee? For the same reason that Susan gave. I my mom is here. 
stage four cancer, there's no one that's able to take care of her. Um, my friends are here. Um, my family was, you know, I've been here all my life. So why should I have to leave my state, my, my, my safe spot for medicine that that should be mine regardless? Anyway. So that's, that's my answer. Thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate that. Thank you. Melody. Okay. Well, um, I have daughters and a, and a grandson here that would be here even if I did leave. And, you know, they, two of them have the same disease I have, this type of muscular dystrophy. And I don't want to see them get hooked on opiates if something less dangerous and addictive would work for them. And that's why, you know, I'm not leaving because I feel like, I need to push this bill for their sake. Fantastic. Thank you, Melody. Lori. I'm a widow on disability, and I cannot afford to start over again. Understood. This is my home, and like Dave said, I should not have to leave my home and uproot, which I built all this on my own with no help from nobody. I did this alone with my two children. And this is my all I have to leave them when I die. Thank you so much, Lori. I appreciate that. So, Dr. Matt, so I, I'm curious. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've heard that question before, but it is, it is common in, in, in advocacy to hear that, well, why don't you just go to Colorado? And I think the question is horrible myself. Uh, I, and I, I want to mention that to everybody. I didn't say that before, that before but I, you know, I think it's a horrible question. And I wanted to get your intake on that as well. You know, why wouldn't you advocate telling people to, well, just go to a state where it's allowed uh, in your circumstance? I might. Mm-hmm. You see, as was pointed out earlier, the public health ramifications of an arrest are devastating. Sure. And if an individual has uh, the ability to go to a state where they're not facing criminal penalties and their personal s- situation and their family situation would allow them to make that choice, I would advocate that they do make that choice. There may right. come a time that Tennessee will join the rest of the country in terms of uh, allowing uh, patients to have access to uh, uh, the full plant material. Uh, I hope, and I think it is inevitable, I do. Uh, I hope I hope it, it does come to pass sooner than later. But for the time being, uh, when it comes to the uh, the negative personal impacts as well as uh, the, the, the impact upon the family where uh, fathers or mothers are taken out of their home uh, and, and now you have the, the, the single-parent families, uh, the, the devastation, especially in our, our inner cities and rural areas of of kids having to be uh, raised without uh, parents in the family, the, the the crisis is both ways. I mean, I, I can I can see the need, the argument to be made that a person should actually leave the state uh, until sure. we can um, we can reach a more enlightened uh, outcome. No doubt. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining the show, and your input has been marvelous, and so is everybody else's. I, I really appreciate you being on, Doctor. Thank you. Thanks again for the show. Certainly. 
you know, so I, I, I want to give a, a big shout out to everybody that joined the show and, and the advocacy that's going on in Tennessee. And in closing, I'll just say this. We covered a lot of ground and, and a lot of it was done generally speaking. But if you really look behind, if you listen to the show again and if, and, and if you play the show or take pieces out of it to talk to your representatives about it, it a lot of it was generally done because, of course, we only have so much time. But it is it is the foundation of where the discussion needs to go. In my view, for so many of you, you guys really opened up. I really appreciate that. I know it's not easy to do. These are not, you know, we're not talking about just, you know, trifle issues here. We're talking about your lives and your lives, you know, being alive, you know, being pain-free, not being in jail, getting your children back. I mean, it's, it's horrible what goes on in these situations. And I, I have to hope that our elected officials will, will at least have, and compassion into a situation that's going on in society, not for a few, it's going on in mass. You know, we, we touched upon the criminal justice reform angle of it, which is huge, of course. We, we touched upon the PTSD issue of it uh, with veterans and others, and that, of course, is a huge issue. And, and then, of course, just people are dying. You know, bottom line, people are dying. So thank you so much for everybody to come on, and I and I really appreciate and support your fight. And certainly, you're welcome to come back anytime. I I, I cover cannabis issues frequently on this show, and and we have another show on Coffee Party Radio called A Cup of Joe that's on every Wednesday night at eight o'clock Eastern Time. That's put on by the Human Solution International, which is a partner of mine that I work with a lot. Uh, matter of fact, most of you talked to one of the members of the board, Mike Harris, on this call. He was doing the, the screening, so I knew who was on the line. And, and please, anytime, you know, if you need anything, we, we, we are involved. We are there, and we want to help this. We want, canna- we want cannabis prohibition to be a thing of the past, and we want to help people survive. Uh, we, want, uh, we want hemp to be grown and used, and we want people to stop being put in jail because they decide that they want to do something safe as opposed to going out and drinking you know, a pint of scotch. So thank you again so much. Coffee Party Radio comes at you on a number of shows that we have. want to plug them a little bit for you, please. I'm doing a special show tomorrow on Hayayuska, another uh, medical uh, what, what, what am I looking to say? And another way to, to enhance your life and battle disease with something that is illegal in some places, of course. I'm going to have somebody on who's an advocate for that, of course. And, and I'm also an advocate for MDMA for PTSD as well. That's another subject that goes right along with this. Prohibition sucks all the way around. But anyway, so Tuesday night we have a Muslim and a Catholic Wake Up America. Uh, right now we're doing old shows on it because uh, – a common cow, one of the hosts, is going through cancer. Uh, actually, he's doing rather wa- rather well, so I expect the show to be back uh, live again soon. Uh, we have, of course, Wednesday a cup of Joe, as I mentioned, on eight o'clock Eastern Time, five o'clock Thursday. We have a number of shows that we broadcast on Thursdays: Lunch with Loudon with Janine Loudon. We have the Conscious Bridge with Mark Gilbert. We have Living Room Conversations. All of those are broadcast on different Thursdays. Friday we have. The Weekly Constitutional, that is on at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, noon Pacific. And then on Saturday, we have Politics Done Right with Egberto Willies, which is at 1 o'clock Eastern and 10 Pacific. Thank you so much for being with me. I'm going to play a, a little commercial for the Solutions Institute, another organization that I'm involved with. Pay attention to it because it helps advocacy 
organizations. That's what it's about. It's about activists, activist consulting. You're an activist. You have a cause and an idea. But you also have lots of questions. You need help. After all, teams have coaches, corporations have consultants, and even politicians have campaign managers. But who do activists turn to? The Solutions Institute. We are a collection of professionals and activists from across the political spectrum. Our goal is to teach, motivate, and put all the necessary tools for activism in your hands without charge. Learn more or submit your project at solutions-institute.org. Yeah, so I, I mentioned that, and I, I always like to play that commercial because you can get a lot of great information and a lot of great help on in, on all aspects of advocacy and activist groups and helping deal with the, the only thing that we don't advocate is force. We, we won't help anybody do anything by force. Uh, everything else is wide open. We don't care what political party you're with or what the situation is. It's, it's helping organizations get their message out. Uh, for what they're advocating for. So if you have a chance, stop by. That's great people involved in that organization. We are going to be, uh, at, uh, along with a number of other organizations, we're part of the Mission Flint, which I want to talk about briefly real quick in closing, because of the lead poisoning, which was a subject that came up by the gentleman from Tennessee, Michael Brooks. We, the, we, all, we all have heard about what's going on in, in Flint, Michigan, relative to the poisoned water, and it's happening in other places. Pittsburgh comes to mind. Houston comes to mind. Uh, some, and, and Missouri comes to mind. We are, we are hoping to make some change. So we're doing another water drop in, in Flint, Michigan, because people can't use their own water, so they, they get bottled water. So we get together with a number of organizations, and we get donations, and we do water drops in the neighborhoods that are most that are that are the worst affected by this and uh please support that effort and check it out and solutions institute is involved in that everybody have a fantastic rest of the day we got some great football coming on if you're a fan it should be a great playoff day the weather seems to be getting a little warmer at least here in georgia from this wonderful snow that we've just had you know it's disgusting uh and i wish everybody well have a fantastic week i'll see you next week i'm out have a great day <laughs>